Control or delete. Control or delete. Welcome to Fraculous, a technology podcast for humans. Episode 319. BBC Three Online, Twitter Changes, and Apple Watch Forever. You had Wi-Fi hacking, down, David. What have you been doing with your Wi-Fi hacking? BBC Three has gone online only as of the 16th of February. It was not me that made that happen. Nothing to do with me hacking anything. I stayed up especially to watch the last programme. What was the last programme, Jeff? Was it a Family Guy repeat? No, the thingy, where they, uh, thingy the, the boy and the girl in Wales. Uh, oh, God, what's it called? Gavin and Stacey. Yes, Gavin and Stacey, yes, the Welsh thing. <laughs> right. But it was like series one episode. I think it was the first, it was the first ever Gavin and Stacey. I fell asleep watching it, but I made the effort to stay up. What time did it actually go off air? I think it was 3am, 3, 3 wasn't it? Was it 4am? Yeah, it was late, by which I mean it was early. So Bye Bye BBC Three, um, <laughs> online, which I will stick my neck out. And I know I disagree with a lot of people who I know who say, actually, I think it's a great thing that BBC Three has gone online. Some people would temper that by saying it's totally the right move, but for the wrong decisions. But you think about BBC Three's core demographic. It's it's TV for, for the youth sector for, I don't know, 16 to 24, whatever. Given you know how I know people of that age group who watch TV, they don't watch it live anymore. It's all on demand. It's all on iPlayer. And that's exactly the right channel. If BBC is going to experiment with putting things online, that's exactly the right channel to be doing it with. And BBC Three has always been seen as experimental anyway, to, certainly in terms of the content and you know the successful stuff floats to the top and ends up on BBC One, BBC Two or elsewhere. And I still think that's going to happen in different ways. If anything, cutting BBC Three loose from some of the, uh, you know, some of the regulation in some ways might mean that BBC Three can be even more creative. I feel like this is where I need to tell you my anecdote, which I feel I may have told you both in person, but maybe not on a podcast about kids that are punished by being made to watch TV. Will, have you you heard about this? I haven't heard of so what happens, I think this started in America now, is that if a young child uh, misbehaves, then they're made to watch terrestrial TV because with, well, I think they're just, but the, but the concept of having to watch, you know, a non-rewindable, non-selectable, non-pausable, you know, uh, program is, is so devastating to them that that is now seen as punishment. We went in way too early with our kids that you could pause telly. Way, way, way <laughs> too early. And it's something I wish I'd kept back because now they <laughs> expect everything to be on demand. And we go, even this weekend, we were up visiting in-laws and they want to watch their usual programs on demand. And luckily, the stuff was on Netflix. So I could pull it up and they could watch their favourite programs. But it would not been on Netflix. I don't have caches of stuff, TiVo'd, kept. They mm. expect to be able to just watch anything, anywhere, anytime. Do, 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 your, do your kids do that strange thing? Apparently, this is also a thing, is that, is that the child will have their own tablet, but they'll still steal their parents' phone, and they like to watch the same thing uh, at the same time on two devices. Have you ever, have they ever done that? That, that apparently is, that, that is a fad. They don't do that. They will maybe have the telly on and a tablet, and they'll be watching different things and trying desperately. <laughs> No, I haven't come across that with mine. They'll have one device. Maybe they'll watch the television and something else, but, you know, certainly not watching the same thing on two different devices. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, we're talking about that there's a generational gap here, isn't there, between the kids who are used to having stuff on demand and having full control over what they watch and then 
our generation and above, certainly, who are much more used to the more linear formats. I was at um, an event at ITV a couple of weeks ago when the Royal Television Society, and they were reporting back on the stuff that they'd seen at CES in Las Vegas on how the you know next generation of technology is going to impact broadcast. And with all due respect, the panel was full of 40 and 50-year-old TV execs and one token millennial. And I say that with kind of inverted commas because even when the host was introducing them, her title was millennial. You know, she had no other qualification but being under the age of 22. It does seem to me very much as though BBC ITV execs are scared and almost kind of lifting up the drawbridge to say, look, we want still to control how people watch television. They will do what we tell them to do. It's as though they just do not understand. They have no connection with how people who in 10, 15, 20 years time, less than that, less than that, of course, watch TV. Broadcast as we know it is changing faster than the people who run broadcast at the moment are comfortable with or know what to deal with. But moving back to BBC Three Online, one thing I'm not sure about once everything goes online is discovery. The good thing mm. about broadcast is you know they're saying this is a good programme because it's on at 9pm on a Thursday. This is where we've put all our eggs. This is the one you should be watching. Once you move online... How do you discover what are the new shows to watch? I mean, sometimes I'll pick stuff up on Twitter and think, people are talking about a show, I'll need to go and find that somewhere and watch it. Because your friends will tell you, and, and, and social media will, will tell you, you know, instead of you being down the pub and your friend going, hey, here's a programme, you'll be on Twitter, and your friends will go, watch this amazing programme last night, and then you will watch it too, and it will spread that way. Have you been to the BBC Three uh, landing page and seen what they're doing about that? First thing I did, I should admit, is that I went to bbc.co.uk forward slash... BBC three and the digit three, and then um, and then I tried out different variations just to make sure that all the URLs pointed because I thought it was quite unusual. You had to type BBC three, the word, as a long word. I just thought, or even just three, I thought would have been more obvious. But I guess that conflicts with the uh, with with the phone company of the same name. But anyway, you have been to the landing page on the on the front there. They've got something yes. called Daily Drop. So yes. what, they're, what they're trying to do, Will, to, to aid discovery is to make sure that you are aware of new content as it drops and push that to the front of the page and to the top of the pile and to give like a, a little show that curates the latest content that's, that's dropped today, which I think kind of makes sense. If I'm honest, I don't like BBC iPlayer's curation at the moment. You know, I go to iPlayer if I want to see... If I'm sat in front of my computer and I'm not near a TV and I want to see what's on BBC One at the moment, it's actually a little bit of a faff to get there. I've got to, you know, tap or, or press a few more times than I'd like to. So I think in terms of discovery, they certainly need to do more than they're doing right now. But they are certainly trying to make sure that new content does rise to the top, that there is still an element of curation as well as content. But I don't think I'll ever go to the BBC Three homepage again because I'm already hardwired which is half the trouble with these things. People get the habits, and my habits is, if I want to watch BBC online, then I will just go to iPlayer. I'll go to my iPad and load up uh, iPlayer. So unless that BBC Three program is promoted on the iPlayer landing page, I'll probably never watch it. Although I think that the iPlayer landing page has is, is pretty much got the same stuff as well. You know, at the top of that, it's got Daily Drop, for example. I haven't checked, actually, since last week when that happened, but yes. But anyway, you were hacking, David. Oh, Wi-Fi yes. hacking, originally. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm doing a few things for BBC Three. I did a documentary that went out a couple of weeks ago called Troll Hunting. Oh, that was you. That was you. <laughs> called, called, called Troll Hunters. Sorry, I should know that, given that I've been working on the show for 18 
blooming months. And this is another thing, actually, about what happens with BBC Three is that that actually then got to repeat on BBC One. So they're long form stuff. I think it's kind of cross-funded in a weird way with BBC One and BBC Two. And if the show that's been created, you know, the main network likes, they'll say, we'll have a repeat of that, please. Does that mean I get any more money? No, of course it doesn't. I'm also doing some stuff for Watchdog. Um, uh, BBC One uh, usually owns Watchdog. But I think a lot of other BBC main shows are being cajoled into creating content for this BBC Three platform. Watchdog is one of those. So uh, I'm doing some bite-sized um, bits of tech stuff. Basically, I'm like a a, a, um, a technology streets magician. I'll go into a place and I'll do this magic trick and everyone will go, wow, I didn't know you could do that. And hacking is a fairly obvious thing to do with that. So um, I actually saw a, a preview of it. It hasn't gone out on BBC Three yet, but I saw a a preview for uh, technical approval on the edit, and it looks really good. I don't often watch stuff that I do and go, "Wow, that's good." But I did this time. It was um, it was pretty useful. And it's um, we were in a coffee shop, and uh, I had my little hack top there, and I just started seeing what I could see with um, a bit of penetration testing software. What stuff people just broadcast unencrypted into the ether, and actually how effective tools that. Uh, try and subvert encryption can be as well. David, 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 if it helps, uh, me and Will, uh, we don't go, oh, wow, when we see you on TV either. We just go, oh, it's David. You know, it's all, <laughs> yeah, very, it's all, very, it's, it's all very low key. <laughs> still, still getting used to it. Still getting used to it. <laughs> um, I've just checked, by the way. I've just, I've just checked, by the way. Sorry, on my iPad, if you go to the iPlayer app, there is a, a, they've inserted a thing for daily drop. And if you tap it, it then takes you out of the iPlayer app and takes you to to the web page, which I think is a bit weird. It should surely keep you within the app. Surely it should keep you within. That would you know, make more a, sense. Yeah. So I think that's a bit clunky. <sighs> Carry on. I've done. I've done. That will be oh, right. to BBC Three shortly. Another thing that I did for the main Watchdog program last year on the Microsoft uh, tech support scam. They've reversioned that. And that's also going out on that as well. And uh, may well be doing something on hacking webcams and baby monitors very shortly too there is that um it's a search engine for unlocked webcam that's right yes and i don't know do people submit to it is that how no it works? so it's got the same sort of spider process that google has but rather than uh detecting web pages it detects ports and so it'll just scatter out, spider out, look for IP addresses, do a port scan against those and see what pings back or, you know, what, what responds back. Protocol is RTSP, real-time streaming right. protocol, which is a standard protocol used by a lot of IP-connected cameras. All that this search engine has done has gone out to, you know, a, a, a ton of IP addresses and it's gone, oh, look, the RTSP uh, ports come back with something. I'll make a note of that. And what is the rationale for this search engine? Because I mean, Google made sense. It's finding web pages. People want web pages. Surely there's something a little bit weird it's about just hunting out unlocked webcams. Nominally, it's a search engine for the Internet of Things, whereby you know people may well have devices attached. People may well want to advertise their their web streams, their uh, camera streams for for good reasons. The moment it is being seen as a bit of a bit of a honeypot for security researchers and for people who just want to see some weird stuff. And I'm not going to lie, I mean, I did some research on this, very, very basic research. Logged on, 
saw what I could see? I found very little. I, I probably spent 10 minutes on the site. I didn't find any live streams. I found a lot of pages and a lot of dead ends. And I, I, I turned away bored. I did get to see one or two bits floating around. Uh, I, I saw someone's bedroom in Hong Kong, I think it was. That was enough for me to say, yeah, you know what? There is a bit of a story here. Because there was a story recently about someone who'd been hacking into a child monitor and speaking to the kids yeah. while the parents was... I mean, I don't understand why the parents were also hearing this because surely that's the whole idea of a monitor. Apparently this voice was coming out of the monitor and it was directed at the children, which is just wrong. Surely you could still get baby monitors which are wired rather than wireless, you know, like a, like a paper cup and a bit of string. <laughs> it's, and there's no outside sources. So you can just... It's just a direct... Cable, a good old-fashioned copper cable, you know, from a speaker to a mic that you just run the length of your house. Wires. No one likes wires. What do people like more, wires or security? Well, that's the thing. I remember the old days of URDA, the IR interface, when Bluetooth was just coming out, and people were defending URDA, saying there's no security involved because it's line of sight. Unless you get line of sight, no one can get your data. And there's that whole thing recently, there's that picture going around about the guy on the tube with the point of sale yep. device. And yep. was, that, was that true or was well, that a, a Well, I don't up? think it was on the tube because it didn't look like a, a London no, it looked like he, train. It looked like he was in a, a line at Tesco or something, didn't he? It, it looked, looked like he was like on he was public shopping. transport. But someone else has done an experiment with tr- using the reader on their phone to activate when they hit a card and saying phone on card works fine. Just even in their pockets, it's enough of a barrier for the NFC not to activate, which would imply you'd have to be pressing pretty hard on someone's wallet. And then you've got card clash as well. I mean, that picture that was doing the rounds uh, a few days ago, allegedly it was taken in Russia. Certainly in this country, you need a little bit more about you in order just to get hold of one of those POS, those yeah. point of sale terminals. Not anyone can get hold of one of those. And it's linked to a, a merchant account anyway. So it's very, very traceable. It's not like you just steal the money and then take it out of the device. It has to be processed somewhere. With contactless payments, it has to be below £30 at the moment in the UK. I I, I call this digital pickpocketing. If you were just to go around taking small payments, you know, a couple of pounds here, £5 there or something like that, a skilled pickpocketer, someone who's watching people getting on and off public transport, seeing where they put their wallets, I reckon they could clean up quite well and people a lot of people don't check their bank statements you know very fastidiously particularly for small amounts they might forget oh yeah i must have spent three pounds on a coffee or something that morning so i reckon you could have a degree of success and if you ever do check your bank statement and see something you think is suspicious and phone the bank it's very hard to get them to give you any information that helps you remember what it was. So I had this card, it's called the Supercard, and it's a foreign currency card, but it's directly linked to your bank account. So you just use it in a cash machine, it takes out euros at one rate, and takes them out as pounds on your bank account without you having to preload it. I came back from holiday and saw a load of transactions to what looked like tuxedo money, which I did not recognise. I phoned my bank and they were all quite small transactions because that's the idea about the supercard is you use it for small stuff. You don't withdraw cash all the time. You just use it like you use your card. I phoned my bank and they were like, 
we're not sure what it is. Do you recognize these? And I was like, well, unless you can give me more information, I'm going to have to say that they're suspicious transactions. And it only then occurred about a week later what it was, worked it out, looked on the app, saw the amounts, they all matched up. I then phoned my bank to say, look, I've worked out what it was. And they said, well, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do now. We have to wait for them to oppose the refund. So I then contacted Supercard and they were like, we can't do anything. Eventually, it took about three months and then it then got taken back out of my bank account and then they, they cancelled my card off that account. The banking industry in this country is, it's, it's not really set up for everything they tell you to do, which is look out for fraudulent transactions. But if you then try and actually follow that up, they can't really help you. Hey, Will. Yep. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to send a bike courier over to your house to come and collect your credit cards just for a security check. Is that all right? This man will randomly turn up and you're just going to hand him all of your personal stuff. Good. Yeah, I always do that. As long as I know that, can't I? <laughs> Speaking of banking and security in the UK, there's certainly a story that broke on Friday here was um, that HSBC, one of the larger banking monoliths in, uh, in the world, but certainly a big presence in the UK, 15 or so million customers, is enabling its app, which affects first direct customers as well as HSBC customers. They'll be able to use Touch ID to log in, but they'll also be able to log in using their voice. Oh, really? What do you think of that? Can you, can you pay with your voice? Don't about paying with your voice. Pay Siri, pay Jeff. Yeah, it, it's authentication. So they take a voice print. And the company behind this is a company called Nuance, who've uh, been experimenting with this with um, a couple of other banks as well. And, you know, HSBC certainly on the first used biometrics for logins. Um, Barclays have done it a bit with their Barclays Wealth customers. NatWest, Royal Bank of Scotland, you can use Touch ID on their apps. But, you know, using... Using voice, I think, is quite interesting in a way. I don't know why you would need to use it unless you've got a particular problem with someone having your thumbprints, but they take a 100 different metrics of your voice. So even if you've been out on a big night the night before, got a bit of a cold, it can still uniquely identify you to a degree that HSBC is willing to trust you just using your voice talking down your microphone on your phone. I think that's quite interesting. I think it's interesting, but it also hits that same problem with anything to do with voice is that you feel like an idiot speaking into your phone. Like we've talked about Siri before. You use Siri quite a lot, David. I don't know about Jeff. Do you use Siri? Are you a big uh, Siri user? The thing I use Siri for the most is when I'm cooking and I need to, you know, someone's got to be in the oven for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And I just go, Siri... Timer, 12 minutes, and, I, and then that's it, because that, that's just easy. I use Siri in the car usually when I'm on my own. I find that th the other problem with Siri or anything voice-related is once it fails, you feel like an idiot. It's not your fault that the computer doesn't understand you, but it makes you feel bad, and it makes you feel self-conscious and makes you less likely to use it in an environment where there are other people around. I think I once used it to send a text message to someone whilst I was driving, so once once in what two years so but david you're a big user of siri or are you still using siri as much i am using siri and i think the thing is like i don't know maybe force touch and and technologies like that it's almost that i forget to use it because i'm so used to doing things with them with my thumb and with my fingers on on you know phones and tablets that it'd be far quicker for me to use siri things like um saying remind me in five hey siri new reminder five minutes time change batteries 
Of course, it hasn't worked because I'm doing it in front That's of the camera. That's the problem. <laughs> that, that is the problem. I now feel a bit stupid. Will, your point's absolutely right. <laughs> I think Siri, the actual technology behind Siri, I like the idea. I like the personal assistant angle. Hey Siri, remind me not to buy an Apple Watch. My Siri's now gone crazy, sorry. <laughs> Siri won't go away now. We've been dissing Siri. It knows, it knows. Sometimes I'd quite like to just text Siri. I like the idea of asking a question and getting some information back. I find that useful, but I don't necessarily want to talk to the phone. I'd quite like just to be able to type in my question to Siri sometimes. Or even just launch things through, I suppose you can launch through search. Well, that's what Spotlight search is Certainly on Macs, sorry Jeff, I, I know this doesn't apply to you, but certainly on Mac, Spotlight <laughs> Search has got a whole lot more intelligent recently, kind of, you know, personal assistant-like. Well, I'm reliably informed that on Windows 10, Cortana is is as almost as good as, or in some, some cases better than Siri, but I couldn't get Cortana to actually identify my microphone and my laptop, so I gave up. Coming back to the authentication thing, Windows 10, uh, you know, Windows Hello, that's that's another thing that lets you log in just just by using your face. As long as you've got one of the uh, Intel RealSense 3D depth cameras, whatever, then you can use your face to log in. And again, Microsoft is you know used by a lot of enterprise customers, uh, a lot of people who need need security on their devices. Only if it's rock solid security are they going to let that in, and they seem to be doing that, which I which I think is great because passwords are, passwords are rubbish, uh, totally. To- totally, totally dead in 2016. You know, we need to remember so many different passwords to to live our everyday lives, and each one of them we're told is supposed to be different with capital letters and punctuation marks and whatever else. We can't remember them. See, I've got one standardish password that I then change a number or a character at the end, but it's it's uh, it's 11 characters long because you're always told longer passwords are better. And the other day, and I'm not going to name them, but I was on a website and they went, "Your password is too long." Yes, I've had that. It has to be between between eight to ten, and I'm sat there going, "Well, this is ridiculous. How, surely a longer password is a more secure password." And I find that utterly frustrating. So I've been using One Password for about a year now. So I've moved over to putting. I started putting anything secure in there, and I've now moved to putting kind of every password in there because it's so useful just to have one pass phrase you type in once and unlock the vault, and then you can easily recall any passwords from it and autofill works really well in safari but i found that the 50 character random numbers some sites will reject that some sites will only take 24 some will only take eight and it really does highlight that this whole security system we have even the people implementing it sometimes don't understand the aspects of security and they could be making you insecure on the back end but they all need to be using the same standard so if you know if one website says you must have one uppercase letter then all websites around the world <laughs> must, must insist you use one uppercase letter so that you can consistently use the same style of passwords across all sites yeah but the other side of this is that you can be secure with your own passwords if you like but if you talk talk if you're Ashley Madison or, or whoever else and you just need you know a 16 year old hacker just to knock on the door and say hey please sir can I have all of your user details please and it spaffs them all out then we can be as secure as we like but if everyone else has got that password then you know what's the point that's why you need different passwords for all of your accounts and if someone's targeting you specifically Jeff and they manage to get even just your one password through one vulnerability through one you know phishing link or whatever I suspect that they would would try variants on that and maybe crack your code. But that is why I think most people have, you know, 
a dead important password, you know, a relatively important password and a, and a throwaway password, which I was annoyed when Adobe got hacked, Creative Cloud and that, that, that was my important password. And I then had to change all my other important, you know, login passwords because I deemed them important enough. They, they'd never been knocked down to my, my medium level password. I have, I have three passwords, basically. There's a thing saying that if there's anything you're proud of about your password, it's a bad password. Because it means that somebody somewhere can write an algorithm <laughs> that can brute force that. And that the whole problem with passwords is that they have to be memorable to humans. And that that means you can then tailor your attack to target things that humans can remember. And this is why password managers are currently one of the best solutions we have is because as long as you have a secure password on your password manager itself, anything else in there is random. And that's the best way to protect yourself is by true random passwords that you, even you don't know. I've got hundreds of accounts, hundreds of the bloody things. I can't, and I can't remember them all. The way to get a good passphrase to secure your vault is to use this thing called Diceware. And the idea is you get six dice. Ideally, you should use casino dice because they're guaranteed to have no weighting in them. And you then, once you've got the numbers from the dice, you then cross-reference this list of words and it will give you a phrase, but it is completely random. And that will give you a secure random password, which is more nice. secure and easier to remember than replacing I's with ones and E's with threes. Interestingly, one password also has that as well. So by default, it'll give you the jumble of, you know, characters, numbers, punctuation and stuff, but you can also get it to generate a word-based uh, password as well. Um, now, talking of 1Password, I've been using that for three or four months now. It's been pretty good. There was some news last week that I saw you put onto the topic list, Will, about 1Password yes. for families. I saw this and I skimmed it. I'm not sure exactly what the benefit is because there is a free level of 1Password <laughs> what 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 which is like sometimes secure yeah, but not sometimes. always secure <laughs> so when it was the heartbleed bug that was when i started looking into one password and other password managers and they had an offer on they knocked 50% off the mac app the iphone app so i just bought it all thought i'll get involved use it see how it works out i think after that they then launched a free version for the iphone and then if you want other features like being able to put the passwords on your watch, if you want to use secure notes, there's various elements you can't use for free. You have to pay for an in-app upgrade. But as far as I'm aware, you can now, I don't know whether it applies to the Mac version, but you can use one password for free on a certain level. You can then pay for the apps if you need the full functionality. And so this family's version seemed to be like a monthly subscription across your family, which is probably a good idea if you have a lot of people you want to use it with. Well, I think there are a number of use cases here. So, for example, in my family, my wife's password management could certainly be uh, better than it is. So, you know, I would, in I, I would encourage her to use password management software. And if we can get a family discount for doing that, then brilliant. But then there are also bits of information that need to be shared amongst us, you know, uh, things like the online management for our uh, electricity and our gas provider and for our telephone provider. That's a, a password that could exist in my password vault or could exist in her password vault. Well, actually, why don't we 
just stick it in a in a shared one in a family shared one and then there's also other bits of information too not just usernames and passwords but you know things like bank account details things like i don't know our, our solicitors names and addresses and things that you know we might want to keep hold of and have as a, as a reference but not just stick on post-it notes around so for for that kind of shared family company i mean one password's got stuff for companies and businesses too i think it makes perfect sense well yes jeff do we need to move on to our next topic i think we probably do and you could edit and you can edit this bit out yeah. Shall we move on to the Twitter algorithm change? I imagine you've got something to say on this, Jeff. Maybe. <laughs> How long have you been on Twitter? I was chatting about this with my friend Dan, who lives in America. I was in America at the time when both Facebook and Twitter uh, you know, came to uh, be prevalent. And I joined Facebook first. And I didn't really get Twitter. And my friend Dan that I worked with in the office, he was in the office down the corridor. He was all about Twitter and, and not so on Facebook. And then weirdly, so many years on, we're like five, six years on from that now. Uh, he is uh, all about Facebook and I'm all about Twitter. So we've, we've, somewhere along the way, we've reversed. And I've, I've quit Facebook and I think he, he hasn't quit Twitter, but he hardly uses it. And he sent me a Twitter message the other day saying, this is the first time I've looked in like three months or six months or something. Mm. So, um, yeah. But I remember I joined Twitter and then I didn't use it. And then I, um, and then I went, went back to it because I, I didn't really get it at first. And then I kind of got it. There was a, a Facebook group the other day that someone showed me saying, I don't get Twitter. It's too complicated. I remember thinking, how can Twitter be too complicated? It's fairly simple in what it does and how it operates. And then just this morning, I saw somebody write an article saying, this is the manual for Twitter that Twitter don't tell you. And it kind of like wrote down all the features and it told you all the sneaky things you could do with lists and, um, and you know, ways of blocking people and uh, etc. And I was, and I... I read that. This, it does seem quite complicated when you read it like that. And when you read it like that, I thought, oh, no, it is more complicated than you think. But essentially, everyone that says, I don't get Twitter, I'm like, well, to me, Twitter is just a conversation. And if someone says, oh, I don't like Twitter, I don't get Twitter, I feel like what they're saying is... I'm not very good at having a conversation. And I fear that there is a generation of kids, or the kids, that have grown up just watching YouTube on their tablets. And because they don't know how to have a conversation in real life, they don't know how to have a conversation online, on Twitter, for example. Well, I joined Twitter in April 2009. I've just looked up. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so, I mean, that was, what, coming up to six years ago. Twitter's 10 years old this year. I think March the 21st or thereabouts, Twitter celebrates its 10th birthday. Twitter also came out with its figures recently. It's kind of stuck around the 300 million uh, mark in terms of monthly active users. It actually lost some users last month if you discount people who still tweet using SMS. It's losing um, between 20 and $25 per second which is extraordinary when you compare that to uh, you know the the money that Facebook's taking home. Facebook in a year takes home the same amount that Apple does in 90 days. I like Twitter. I get the conversation. I you know chat with people who don't get Twitter, who don't want to be on there and stuff. And I do wonder if Twitter itself is an echo chamber. You know, we we talk about how you can, particularly in social media, and Twitter's an example of that, if you follow people who all have the same belief, the same thoughts as you do, then <laughs> you can very quickly become radicalised almost. I, I, I really like the quote after the general election in the UK, 
was that last year, 2015? Last yeah, that, year, was, yeah. that was the general election. And one of the responses was, is, I can't believe that the election you know, didn't, didn't vote the same way as my Twitter timeline. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. it was very liberal-leaning. <laughs> That's the thing. And I think that one of the things with Twitter is, you know... Um, we can't believe that it'll disappear like the Nottingham Forest team that got relegated from the Premiership all those years ago. They played too good football to get relegated. Well, guess what happened? They got relegated. And Twitter is too useful to the media, but a lot of the time we're tweeting about whether Twitter's going to carry on and you know be successful. It becomes very self-sustaining. Let me ask you to this. Oh, I'm suddenly I'm asking a question. Um, I would pay a subscription to keep on to stay on Twitter if it came to it would you pay for it and how much how much I would pay yes how much well, how much would you pay well here's the thing I would pay on it I would pay so long as the other people who make Twitter a useful experience for me to be on also carried on paying and were also part of it other companies have tried this there was app.net which was almost a originally a Twitter clone it was I think they offered 200 characters rather than 140 but that was the and you paid five dollars a year ten dollars a year something like that and then it did expand so it was the graph it was almost like a platform your social graph was a platform that you could put photos on you could put messaging on but did they charge from the start they did yeah well then well then that well then that's the difference twitter started free and now they could say just pay a small amount per year i'd pay five pounds a year to have an ad free Twitter experience. I would, I would do that. I mean, I started back in two thousand and six on Twitter. Wow, you were wow. really early. I was. I was only two thousand and eight. All right, all right, Will. All right, Will. You, you win. Well done. My first tweet was trying to work out what the point of this site is. Lovely how you called it a site. How quaint. A year later, I logged in again. Can I just say? I think mine was worried this might be pointlessly addictive. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, that was a precursor. Thank you very much. <laughs> I logged back in a year later, updated saying still am. And I think then a year later in 2008, I actually, I don't know what happened, but I started using it. Oh, I know what it was. There was this publishing company, Shiny Media. They had blogs about everything. They launched a Twitter focused blog. And so I kind of figured I better just find out what Twitter is about again. And at that point, I think you could still use it, or you could use it over Google Talk. I had Google Talk on my BlackBerry and I could get all the messages flooding in. This is before like apps for it even existed. It was it was the web or it was SMS, neither of which were very useful, especially because I was using my phone a lot, even my BlackBerry back then. It was weird when Twitter was over SMS. I remember my housemate in America in 2009 complaining to me she went i'm gonna to have to unfollow you on twitter i went why is that she went because you because you did four tweets today and yeah. that's like two and that's too many to come through on my phone i'm like why i'm like why would you do that why would you have it set up for everything to come through on your phone but she did that's what people did that's what she did that's weird i find that weird but i went through a really great period of really enjoying twitter was that before you had children and you had time to tweet yeah maybe <laughs> it could it could be that and then i have I've slowly backed away from Twitter. It's kind of, I don't feel the same need to tweet anymore. Are your friends still on Twitter? The people who you used to have regular engagement with, have they backed off as well? Is that part of it? A few people have backed off. I mean, you and Jeff are still on there, obviously. I still do, I still read it regularly, but it's not quite as much as I used to. And so this is moving on to the, this is to basically set up the algorithm change, which is, impending i've got it as a setting um, i should just say i've got th three 
Twitter accounts. So I've got my main one. I've got my one where, which is like my dark Twitter account if I want to do some stalking. And then I've got one for something, another project that I work on. So I'm not on my main account. I've switched it on just today. And I immediately go to settings. I went back, you know, to my home screen and no- nothing appeared. So I think it's going to take a while for the algorithm to come into effect and obviously and then start to push tweets to my uh, top. But basically, I'm, I'm not going to do it for, for my main account. I think it, it, they, I think what I'm worried that what Twitter don't get is that for many people, it's a real time conversation. And just as you miss, thing in, miss things in real life, you could miss things on Twitter as well. And that's OK. And it's not there to to let you know everything all the time, just what's happening at the moment. But then Twitter's had this for a while, though, hasn't it? It's had, if you use the main Twitter client... While you were away. While you were away. And actually, I found a lot of tweets, and I don't know how it works that out. There's an algorithm of some sort behind it. They haven't picked those tweets at random, so it's certainly algorithmic. Um, There is stuff there that I'm going, oh, yeah, I'm really pleased. No, that, no. That was brought to the top, to the front of my attention. I can just scroll past it if I like, and then I'm back onto my timeline. Completely disagree, because I'd be on the train on the way home, and I'd caught up on my Twitter timeline, and then I'd get home, and at some point in the evening, I would check Twitter on my home computer, and it would go while you were away, and it would show me all the tweets I'd already read on the way home earlier, because it couldn't differentiate between what I'd read on a mobile device and what I was reading on, on my desktop. But that's that, that's a problem with Twitter's algorithm. I think that the that the concept, the, the the principle there of just show me half a dozen tweets, a dozen tweets that um, it thinks it you know has some way of proving were important during the course of the day. I think that's useful in terms of messing around with my entire timeline. No, no, thank you. But if you can suggest some things that you think I might like um, and you're accurate, then. Hell yeah. So the other thing I feel like I need to mention, there's a poor old Twitter engineer called Brandon, I forget his surname, but somebody screen captured, do you see this, like four tweets of his and his, his timeline, and it got it went a, a little bit viral. And basically this is a guy that works on Twitter, and he said something, and somebody had responded to him, and his reply was, wow, people on Twitter are mean. <laughs> <laughs> and thousands of people replied going, yes. And, and someone then put this screen, chat, uh, screen captured it and went, Twitter engineer discovers, you know, how Twitter works. <laughs> and that was the crazy thing. I do remember that. But then it, I think that is part of why I don't engage with Twitter as much anymore. It's to do with that underlying level of vitriol that can come out. But there's an underlying level of vitriol with people in real life. Why is it any different to real life? Oh, it's very different to real life. Don't try and pretend that it's not. I rarely have vitriol in my in my real life. <laughs> no, I say that knowing what the difference is. The difference is people can be vitriolic towards you behind the safety of their keyboard, but people out there still think that. You just don't meet them or see them. That's great. That's fine. I'm quite happy not meeting them <laughs> or interacting with them. I think that's the thing. It's kind of back in my, my good old days of Twitter, it was... It was mostly people I knew because it was I was a tech journalist. It was used basically by tech journalists to talk. It was like being in a newsroom. So it had that thing of even though a lot of us were freelance or working across many titles, it was a place to meet and talk about things. And there was very little anger and resentment and people just sniping. Whereas now I feel... A lot of it is anything you put up there, someone is going to have a go at you. Yeah. And it's just, well, I could just not put it up. Do we think Stephen Fry is going to come back or has he gone for good? Oh, yeah, he'll definitely come back. (laughs) (laughs) Every time he goes and he comes back. 
The, the other thing I thought was very interesting is that I then discovered the account Jack, which I, I don't know his surname. Jack Dorsey. That founded Twitter, three million followers. He's quite big. So I followed him and I was like, okay then. And I realized quite quickly that he doesn't tweet anything. All he does is retweet a whole load of stuff. And I'm like, this is a retweet. This is a retweet. This is a retweet. He's running two major companies. Fine, but he doesn't use Twitter for the, the, in the same way that I think the majority of his users do. But I don't think you have to use it to understand it. I, I, I would argue otherwise. I think you do need to use something to understand how it works. <laughs> I, but I think you have to use it obsessively on the same level to understand what is the key thing about it and why people like it. But if the majority of people are using it in a different way to the guy that behind it uses it, then he doesn't appreciate how people are using his product. It can be a huge time suck. And if you're trying to run a company like Twitter mm -hmm. and not lose $25 a second or whatever it was, you've probably got more pressing things. And he's running Square, which is the payment company. Again, that's probably taking a lot of his time. He doesn't have time to tweet. I can see why. I can see that you can go down the rabbit hole and get sucked into conversations you don't want to have, especially if you're the CEO of Twitter. Let's just imagine a scenario here, because I think it'd be fun. Let's say that Twitter folded tomorrow, okay? Yep, yep. All those $25 a second stacked up and it folded tomorrow. Yep, I've thought about this. Go what on. What stops working? <laughs> what changes? I'd use Peach more. I'd rejoin Facebook. <laughs> I'd probably watch more YouTube videos. <laughs> You see, I think some th there will be a vacuum for sure. I think half of yeah. two thirds, maybe more journalism, certainly tech journalism would suddenly stop working because Twitter is a major source for a lot of it is. journalists. And that's, and that's just how it works. It's become its own ecosystem. And the fact that Stephen Fry quit Twitter the other day uh, after the uh, it was after the BAFTAs, wasn't it? That itself was a news story. No, no, it was ridiculous that it was a news story. If Stephen Fry had quit LinkedIn or quit Peach, nobody would have cared. It shouldn't have been a news story. It's not a news story. It's not a helpful one for him. But then it's probably not helpful for him in his mental state that that he freely talks about to be on there in the first place. Which I, I made that's a bad thing to say, but it, it's he says himself, Twitter's not a, a healthy place for me to be. But that is the thing. It is almost like, do I want to put myself out for... It's become a place where people that are cross and angry hang out looking for fights. It has other uses, definitely. It, other people use it for other things, but there is an underlying current now, I feel. That's because in real life, there are people who are angry and want to pick fights. It's a reflection of what people are like in, in real life. It gives them a platform. That's the thing. They don't have a platform in real life. This is where I disagree with you, Jeff, is that I don't believe that people harbour that anger in their everyday lives to the same extent that they do online. I mean, I come across as a bit snipey sometimes, not that much, but other people I know do. They change behind a keyboard. It's not that it's there all the time. It's this thing called the online disinhibition effect. People are incredibly generous or can be very cruel online, but it's this anonymity. It's the distance from the person who you are affecting that changes your behaviour. Yes, there are sparks in people's brains. So, and that's why I say I don't agree that people are cruel in, in the same way as they are online in real life. Especially when they see a reaction or a genuine reaction where they've upset somebody. Yes. And th this comes back to the whole trolling thing. You know, you speak to trolls and, you know, say, do you know that you were doing that to that person? Very often they'll go, um, well, actually, no, I didn't. 
or that's just something that I do when I'm online. It's not real life. So I'm all for the algorithm change. <laughs> I will. I will. I'm not. I'm going to unfollow you. But okay, that's it. I don't know whether it's actually going to make me use Twitter more. That's the thing. I'd rather the algorithm got rid of that bad feeling. I think if they spent time addressing that, that would be much more useful. Because I think the problem is people... They may come to it, they may find it hard to get used to, but then they start using it and then all of a sudden torrent of abuse and just, why bother anymore? Why am I even going to continue? Well, no, no. Why would a new user suddenly get a torrent of abuse? If you're a new user, you follow BBC Breaking News, Stephen Fry, not, uh, you know, and you, you ease yourself in gently. You, then you follow all your friends, all your Facebook friends, go, yeah, on Twitter. And it's only if you start putting yourself out there that you then start getting stuff back. But the whole thing is to be... A member of Twitter properly, you have to be talking to other people. But they can just be your friends, you know, who don't slug you off. But I think that's the whole thing. That's what Facebook's for. That's where your friends are, where you know you're <laughs> going to get... I would say I get much more use out of my, my sporadic Facebook updates. I mean, obviously, they're usually family-related, but it's a much more friendlier place. I know I'm not going to get any abuse from Facebook. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But um, I still think Twitter's the best. There is very little anonymity in Facebook. Okay, yes, there, there are some examples, but generally speaking, it's not very anonymous. You've connected with friends, you've connected with people you've worked with in the past and so on. It's a nice, cosy community. Whereas Twitter, it can... Be, and that's one of the problems. And, you know, Jack, Jack Dorsey and, and his predecessors have said at length in the past how trolling, bullying, the negative sentiment that Will talks about, that is actually a bit of a scourge of the platform. But certainly in my experience, they've been very unwilling, unable, but I think unwilling to do anything about it. You know, washing their hands of responsibility. We're just the platform, you know. <laughs> We're not going to shop people. We just provide the platform, which is shocking in my book. Right, Apple Watch, go. Hey, Will, hey. David, what time, what time is it? 2138. And we should be in sync. Our second hands should be in sync. I, I love my Apple Watch. <laughs> it has its problems. Don't get me wrong. But I got one. I pre-ordered it. I got it on day one. And I don't know. Really, I wasn't really sure what to expect about it. I think this is the great thing about it was it was a new thing, something we hadn't seen before. And I was interested to see what I would use it for. After what, coming up to a year's use, is it for time? I know it sounds like a weird thing to use a watch <laughs> for, but I don't have to get my phone out of my pocket all the time now, which is great. I use it as a remote control for my phone. So I listen to a lot of podcasts and I use it, I use the glance to control them. I think that's another reason it stops me getting my phone out of my pocket. I use it for notifications. So whenever anything comes in, I can quickly glance and see if I need to action it or whether I can wait. So it's, a lot of it is just handing off stuff which I would be doing on my phone, but enables me to do it much more quickly. And for me, that's the primary use for it. I don't think the battery life is a problem because I have to charge my phone every day, so I charge my watch every day. I now wear it at night, so I just charge it for an hour in the morning when I'm getting ready, and that's enough to keep it going. I've had a couple of days where it's just gone, something rogue has happened, and some process has been spinning in the background, 
and drained it down to like 20% when it should be around 50. But I, I've never had it completely die on me. But I don't use it for apps. I think the whole app, it's not an app platform. It's too slow. It doesn't have the power yet. Battery technology isn't there yet. So I think that will be the interesting thing in the future is whether they can solve that problem. How about you, David? What's your been your experience with the Apple Watch? Well, I think you've boiled it down to three things. Appli- applications, notifications and quantifications. And certainly in terms of quantification, you know, right on the front and centre of the home screen on my watch. The watch face. Thank you. Um, I'm going to call it a home screen because that's what it is these days. I've got my current stats and I've I've stood up for 10 of the 12 hours today. I've done 22 minutes of exercise and burnt 308 calories of my 520 target. That stuff, rightly or wrongly, is important to me. If nothing else, it you know, particularly when I'm sat down behind a desk tapping away at a, at a keyboard so much, I, I find that stuff's important. So that sort of self-quantification, I think, important for me notifications too yeah you know don't get my phone out of my pocket half as much i can tell you know if it's something i want to deal with now or deal with later perversely i'm almost less connected to my phone now than than, than i was before yet more connected on my wrist and i agree with you too i think you've hit the nail on the head with applications there's no killer app on here yet everything is more hassle on here than it is on my phone so if i need to do something yeah i mean i've got a watch face full of apps on here yet each one of them either fails to load properly and that's the inexcusable thing for me is that it's so unreliable you know apps will just sit around hang around close go back to the home page again i'm like come on this is apple this is not an apple user experience that i have I've come to expect so something really needs to happen in the next generation of apple watch otherwise it's dead as an app platform for me i was hoping when they introduced custom complications in the 2 OS. Why is it even called a complication? The fact that you're calling it a complication makes me not want to use it. That's a ridiculous name. It's a term from, is it horology? Is that the, yes, the I think so. study of watches? On, a, on an analog watch, anything that doesn't tell the time is called a complication. And because Apple has taken that whole severe over to the watch they call it a complication it's just i think that's a really bad name and if there were a better name for it then it might persuade a few more people to get to get on board call it a widget then go on call it a widget if you want to i think that's naff as well there should be a better name there's your challenge jeff before we record the next podcast <laughs> come up with a better name across between widget and complication widgetcation or something Compli widget but i was hoping that the custom complications would because I didn't used to use the complications because I didn't get any value from them. They were just cluttering mm. the screen. They were complicating the screen. And I liked the kind of the clean look I was getting. I thought with version 2 OS, there'd actually be some use for them, but they don't update regularly enough. So no. it's really a case that the glances, the ones you swipe up from the bottom, give you quick information. Again, they're not fast enough unless it's a built-in Apple one. The only complication that I have that I use other than setting a stopwatch or setting a timer or something is the dark skies one, which again, I tap on that and I get instant access to the weather forecast, which because I'm British is important to me. But I do find it's the notifications from dark sky. I'm more likely to go on. I'll glance at it in the morning, see what the temperature is. But 
that's about it. I'm relying on that notification that it's going to rain in three minutes. Would you like to know why I don't have a watch? I would. Let's move on to why you're unwatched. Well, well the thing is, I do have a watch, but I have a non-Apple watch. So I actually have um, like a GPS fitness watch anyway. So I'd, part of me thinks, well, if I didn't have that, would I be then tempted? But I'd, to buy check out, you know, the GPS fitness tracking capabilities of the Apple watch, I would be worried about the battery because I'm already charging my iPad and my iPhone, and it's just then yet another device to, to charge overnight. So I think until the day that you are not charging it every day, then it's not looking particularly um, appealing. And also with the quantification, because I'm extremely OCD and in, enjoy playing and fiddling, I actually think it'd be a massive time waster for me because I just spend all my time playing with the watch and getting it just right and just so and just perfect, um, and then probably ending up getting very frustrated with it for all the reasons which you've mentioned. Uh, which then just makes me want to wait until you know version two of the watch is out. So, so if there is a version two this year, then I will be back down the Apple Store having a play, having a feel, having a look, and and then making a decision. But I still think I won't. Well, I'm not sure how much better version two can be. Remember how much better the iPad two was over the first iPad. So, the, so there was a lot of that as well. I do remember thinking I'm going to wait until the you know the next generation of watch before I seriously consider it. And the same with the iPhone as well. You know, the iPhone three was decades ahead of the uh, original iPhone. But I went from I original iPhone to four, and that was a huge leap. But I didn't really see that much advantage of getting the three GS or the three G. Well, apart from the fact it supported 3g 3g yeah <laughs> but 3g wasn't really there at that time i didn't find enough benefit from that i was finding edge fast enough really and there was enough like i was using it on wi-fi at home it was enough to trickle data in it was a different time we weren't quite so data hungry we didn't we didn't think about watching youtube videos on the move there wasn't that same kind of data use i was living away from home when i got my iphone 3G mm. Wi-Fi was not a luxury I had, so you know, upgrading as it was to uh, to to, uh, to that iPhone was a the 3G was a huge huge game changer for me. But again, I think the big problem the watch is its processor power and battery life, <clears throat> mm. and those things aren't going to change much. There's been no massive advance in batteries in the past year, and that's the thing that's constraining the Apple Watch at the moment is the amount of battery you can fit in and how fast you can run the processor without draining that battery. Yeah, but like you said, I think there's actually plenty of capacity in the design that we've got here. And that's, you know, well over a year old now. Well, the design's over a year mm. old. The, the watch has been out for less than a year. So I, I think there's, you know, going to be a few more horses that they can squeeze out of it. I think it just comes down to just making the bloody apps work. You know, I just don't get that it doesn't work properly yet. <laughs> See, you're not convincing me to buy, to buy a, a watch. When are we expecting Watch 2? When's the Watch 2 announcement going to happen? Well, it's either going to happen in April or in September. Well, there's a heavy pencil for an Apple uh, announcement on the 15th of March, Tuesday the 15th of March, which okay. would tally with when there was an Apple announcement, I think, last year of sorts as well. Mm. And then the Apple Watch itself last year came out... First week of April, wasn't it, Will? The beginning of April, yeah. And no, I remember it was on a Friday that you could place your, your order. I wonder what the strap line's going to be. Hey, strap line. <laughs> this, this, this time, it's it's time whatever. Yeah, there, there should be. I mean, my big line. thing about the watch is it doesn't enable you to do anything you can't already do. <laughs> For a minute, I thought you were going to say, the big thing about the watch is that you can't tell the time. <laughs> 
it just makes stuff easier. <laughs> and as long as you stop, like you have to be aware of its limitations and that it is, it's a version one product. But I do love it. Will, what's the weirdest scenario you've been in? And I was going to say, please don't say having sex, but you can say that, where, where, where you've stopped doing something in real life to, to look at your watch. And has someone called you out and, and been like, dude, look, you're right in the middle of so-and-so, and you then glanced. Have you, have you been caught glancing? No, because you get the thump. It's a case of if I'm in a conversation with someone and it would be rude to look at my watch, I ignore yeah. it. And then I then look at my watch later when I'm no longer speaking to them. Whereas... If I'm kind of walking, I'll get a thump. It's a bang and then down again. Although that bang, I find to be a little bit uh, unreliable. Sometimes you'll see me walking down the street going, bat, nope, bat, nope, bat, oh, heaven. I find that it's almost like you have to wait a second after the thump. Like you almost have to go, I got a thump. Do I want to know? Yes, I want to know. And then you'll see the thing happen in front of your eyes. Answer me this. Have you both had genuine moments where you've gone out for the day without your watch and you're like, oh, shit, I've got... Did did you genuinely feel like you you were missing something or did you think, oh, that's fine, I can get by with it? Yes, definitely. I've never not gone out with it. (laughs) In the whole year that I've had it. Every day? Every day. I've worn it every single day. Did you ever leave the house and be like, oh, no, and then you sort of turned around just as you're going to shut shut the front door and... You know, because you couldn't go out without your watch. No, because I, I have to put it on to get the stand goal of the day. So I'm aware that if I'm not wearing it, I'm not scoring. And it's actually, it's very good for if you sit and work at a desk all day, you don't stand up. You can go for hours without standing up. Yeah. And it's, I found it's very useful just reminding you every hour, stand up, walk around for a minute. I find that very, very useful. I have left the house without my watch a couple of times, once on purpose, once when I said, you know, I, I, I've got a drawer full of watches that I spent, not going to lie, thousands in total, well, over a thousand pounds in total on these watches, on these timepieces, let's, let's call them what they are. So I said, I'm going to bloody well wear that Tissot T-Touch, which has got a bit of tech in it anyway. But I tell you what, I missed not having the connection to my phone. And I'm, it, it's interesting psychologically what it does to you. You know, you, you become so used to being connected on your wrist, having the instant glance of uh, who's trying to contact you. And I felt myself being more drawn towards my phone. I I think this is a problem with me rather than, you know, a, a good thing about the watch, the fact that I have become more addicted to the technology because, you know, it's incredibly accessible on my wrist. Maybe I should make myself wear my watch less often. Maybe when I'm on holiday, I shouldn't be wearing my watch. Actually, Will, that's a question for you. Even when you're on holiday, remember those? Do you still wear your watch? I did. In fact, I even invested in a really awful protector because I was worried that sand was going to scratch the the glass. But actually, I think that was probably unnecessary. I found that my watch... I mean, I'm worried about dropping it. I think if I drop it, it's it's not going to come off well. Mm. But in terms of scratching, even without the sapphire, because I've I've only got the sports model, even without the sapphire display... I've not noticed any major scratching. Same here. I, I mean, I took this to the to the beach. Uh, didn't wear any protection. Went swimming. Um, got a little bit salty, sticky, and the sounds it made were a little bit muted for a little while. I've been swimming down the swimming pool in this. It's absolutely fine. Apple doesn't advertise it as being waterproof. It probably 
isn't warranted as being waterproofed or, or anything. But actually, certainly in my experience, it um, like the iPhone 6s by all accounts, yep. does seem to have a good degree of um, of, of protection against the elements. Guys, you convinced me. I'm going out tomorrow and buying a watch. <laughs> Although I noticed, I mean, previously, I was a Pebble owner. I had a Pebble Steel, and um, Apple Pay is something we haven't talked about. Apple Pay is a big thing for me. I only use Apple Pay on my watch. Yeah, me too. I don't know how to use it on my phone. Originally, I had a 5S when I got my watch. What do you mean? What do you mean you don't know how to use it on your phone? I'm serious, Jeff. I don't know how to use Apple Pay on my phone. Your phone has got an NFC chip in it. You hold the phone against against the NFC pad, and then what do I do? You put your thumb on the Touch ID pad, and it pays. That's it. Brilliant. I've never done that. I've <laughs> always done it with my watch. What you've never done? How can you... What? You're a tech... <laughs> the only reason I have my cards loaded on my phone, as well as my watch, is so when I was having to reset my watch a couple of times due to OS updates and that kind of thing, was so I could then easily send them over to my watch. That's the only reason I have my cards on my phone. I've never used them. But I did pay for my success with my watch in an Apple store. And that was yeah that no was no the yeah the other day I bought something in an Apple store using Apple Pay and it yeah. just it, yeah it felt like yeah this is the future. yeah if, I do I use my Apple Pay on my phone all the time now just and so what I've actually done I've got various credit cards and and then I sort of pay them all off and I was like right I'm just going to use the one credit card that's that's on my phone and so I try I've tried now this last month since since the new year actually to just use my phone for everything and then it's annoying and frustrating when I go somewhere and they don't take contact list. and I'm like what do you mean you don't take contact list? and this guy was like oh and I'm like oh, and I had to like you know get some cash out and it seemed like yeah it was yeah, that was a bit of a moment when I realized I, I was I was that guy but that was one of my original reasons for getting the watch was to Apple Pay enable my 5s although Apple Pay hadn't come to the UK at that point. But I do, I use Apple Pay all the time on the watch and I think it's fantastic. I use Apple Pay all the time on my 6 and it is, it is yeah, and it's genuinely hard to imagine not using it and what's more, what's scary is that it's how quickly it's got there because normally, you know, these things take a while to evolve and now, I'm, but I've, I've got on board with it very quickly and I'm like, yeah, this is really good. This is really good. And still, I was up in Edinburgh last summer, only last summer, and I did, admittedly, it was sort of in some back street in Leith, there was some cafe, and the woman sort of looked agog with eyes wide when she went, did you just pay with your phone? And I think this was the first time she'd seen it. And I'm like, yeah. You want to <laughs> so, try paying with your watch? Yeah. That still knocks <laughs> people out in central London. <laughs> Although I do find there is still a bit of a gamble at the tube gates when I'm oh. using my watch. Oh, oh, I had a bad one the other day. My watch went and froze and it doesn't do that very often. And I had to reboot my watch so I'm stood there by the exit barrier. People are thinking this guy's right sus is trying to tailgate somebody else. Control or delete. Control or delete. Had to wait about two and a half minutes while my phone rebooted so I could touch out again. I mean, I always have gone by the rule that you get two goes and then you step aside. You don't just keep there smashing it in oh, for the reader. No, good rule. Oh, I like that. Yeah, fair you go, play. You go and work out what is happening. You go and try a different thing. But you get two goes, then you move out the way. So one go, fail, one retry, yeah. and then clear off. After two goes, then it's, you clearly it's something's wrong that you can't solve just by repeatedly doing it. Yeah, agreed, agreed. There's also that slight thrill of going through the gate and thinking, am I going to annoy a load of people now or am I going to look really cool? 
<laughs> you just never know. You just never know. I, I don't think you look really cool very often. People look at you and go, what a twat. What a twat. What a prick. Yeah. Good. So that's right. Apple Watch. Shall we do the other topic? And then I'll let you go for a wee, Jeff. Also, Vicky has been making some delicious chocolate puddings and I can smell them down the corridor. And I, and I really want a delicious chocolate pudding. Let's talk iPhones and specifically iPhone capacity. Because a thing I learned about you today, Jeff, is you only have a 16 gig iPhone. Yeah. Now, yeah. I... For shame, for shame, as the kids would say. Well, no, I've, I've, I hang out online, places like Mac Rumors Forum, the Apple Reddit, the iPhone Reddit. And when they announced the 6S was going to have 16 gigs, 64 and 128, people could not believe that anyone would be buying the 16 gig, that the 16 gig was purely there to make you buy the 64 gig. And while I do agree, the price differential is ridiculous. <laughs> it's about yep. another £100. I think for the, the user who would have bought the 32 gig, they effectively get 32 gig free. I will always buy the biggest iPhone you can get on the market. And I always have. Would you like to know my reasons and, and thoughts? Why do you buy a 16 gig iPhone? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you that person? Because I'm poor. So uh, when I had a iPhone, it might have... Actually, I think it was a 4S, because I went from a 4S. I didn't ever have a 5. I went from the 4S to the 6. You jumped You jumped to the 6, didn't you? You bought it in America. No, I didn't. No, I came back because David told me about the... the you couldn't get 1100... You couldn't get, it was either 900 or 1100... One of the frequencies, I think it was... Was it 1100 megahertz, David? That doesn't work in... in in the UK. In the UK. There we go. Yeah. I had a 32 gig 4S. At the time, I had a 16 gig iPad, and I think it was on that flight home from America that I was frustrated with not being have, able to load up all my favorite movies and TV programs onto my iPad to watch. So I then did consciously think then, the next iPad I get is going to be at least a 64. So I did indeed go out and get an iPad 2 64 purely so that I could just load it up with media. And to this day, it's chock full of media. And then when I got the new phone, there was no 32 gig model. And I thought, pfft. I can get by on a 16. You know, I don't, I don't want to pay out for a 64. And you're right, I do have to do a bit of juggling. And if I, and I don't have any media in terms of like, um, you know, I don't watch any movies or stuff or TV programs on my phone because that's all on my iPad. And I can still, I can, um, I generally have about between two and three gigabytes free on my iPhone. And I just use that to take photos. And every now and then I clear things down but i did i had a big purge i, I was like i do, do i use this app really and i you know and i killed all the apps that, that that i don't use and i was hoping that when app app thinning came along that might get a bit of space back but that hasn't still that hasn't quite worked yet i think ios 9 did get me about half a gigabyte of space back though so they obviously did work some magic there but uh, i fear that i'm waffling so cut in at any point i was disappointed actually with ios 9 so i had I went from a 64 gig 5S to a 128 gig 6S. Yeah. But I was kind of at the tail end of my 5S days thinking I just need to hold on because I know I'm going to get the 128 gig phone. I'm yeah. down to my last gigabyte, which is a painful place to be on I I iOS. Yeah, I've, The main problem is I've got about 25 gig of photos and video on there. Do you, do, you, do you have iCloud photo? Well, what I have, I have the iCloud backup. So I back up to iCloud. I have the 200 gig mm. backup space. 
I used to sync them with my Mac to iPhoto, I think. But for me, it was a case that if they're on my phone and they're backed up, that's a backup that's happening automatically. I don't need to manage it. If I delete them off my phone, they're no longer going to be backed up to the cloud. Yeah. It's, I'm going to have to start having another backup system for that. I don't want to have to do that yet. It's just buying time, basically. But now I've learned that the Photos app on Mac, I think if you import your photos into it, you can then delete them from your phone, but you can still access them. Correct. So that's what I need to do next. But I've still got 64 gig free on this phone. And if everything I've read and have heard is true, it takes a long time to upload your photos to, to you know, the iCloud photo library. It, 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 you need a fast connection and a lot of patience. I've got a pretty fast connection. I've literally heard of people sort of doing it bit by bit over about three months. It's taken them three months to do it because it hogs all the bandwidth. So I'm going through this right now. So what, what size phone are you on? I, I'm on a 128 gig. Size is not important, Will. Size is not important. But I'm interested to know what, what David's rationale for a 128 was. Because I film quite a lot, you know, mobile journalism, something I, you know, faff around with quite a lot and, and do a lot out and about with the family and, and then out on jobs and stuff. So having a phone with a large capacity was important for me. And, you know, similarly to you, with iPhones, I've always bought full fat. You know, just give me the biggest, best that you can do because I know I will regret buying anything less than that when I'm having to media manage all the time. But when it came to photos, I don't think Apple does a very good job with um, advertising how it works. And, you know, we are filling up our phones. Yeah, I've got no clue. It's Yeah, exactly. And if we've got no clue, what clue does the average... That, that sounds awful. But what clue does someone who isn't doesn't do technology and talk about phones for a living have? I was tempted by what Google does with its Google Photos app. And the big offer there is that providing you ration the size of image, you know, no more than, uh, I can't remember exactly how many megapixels, but certainly more than my iPhone shoots with, then you've got unlimited storage in the cloud. There's an app that sits on your desktop, there's an app that sits on your phone, and it will just upload those photos to the cloud so you can free up space on your phone or on your desktop. It will do little animations with them. You know, if you've taken a sequence, if you've done a burst of them, for example, it'll create an animated GIF. They're brilliant, by the way. Really, really good fun. Can it do live photos, though? doesn't do live photos. I don't have an iPhone 6S Plus. Uh, I've not been aware of live photos anywhere. I don't see them posted on Facebook. I love them. I haven't seen them anywhere else. Well, the problem is I have posted a couple on Facebook. I think, I think they're a gimmick. They're a gimmick. Well, you say that, Jeff. You say that. Well, I do. Because <laughs> I think that's true. As David says, you, you don't see them. There's no easy way to share them. So I have posted a couple on Facebook where I've had to convert them to GIFs and Facebook doesn't loop the GIF. They add a little bit of extra life to a photo. And especially, I used to take photos of the kids and there's just something about, especially on the watch face, I've got a photo face that I use on the weekends and I just show my favourited photos on there when I look at them. And when I raise my wrist, now if it's a live photo, you'll get a little bit of movement in there. It just adds an extra thing to the photo. And mm. things like skipping or fireworks, sparklers, that kind of thing. It just brings photos alive and just adds an extra thing to them. Um, slight, slight tangent, but, but relevant. May I interject? Please do, Jeff. It, well, it pertains to Apple doing something and you don't, you don't know that it's there. So only just this week I was making a, a video with my new friend Tom 
and we took and he, <laughs> we we took yeah and we uh, and we used the, the iPhones to take some burst photos and I went oh and I was like now I've got to pick this I'm now got to pick the, the the best one and he went oh well you know it's it's highlighted and I went sorry I and I had no idea no I had no one had told me so it scans and it it picked but it blobs the one where your face is smiling and you're looking it picks the best picture for you I had no idea and I've been using it for like over a year and I was like whoa it's because Apple don't tell you these things they don't tell you. And you can choose just to keep the best one and delete all the rest of the stack or just keep them all. No, 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 no. Hang on. Let me, let me just be clear. I know about the keep the best feature, but it highlights the one it thinks is the best one for you. You know that, right? Yeah. It but that, chooses that, that's one the for first you. one that you see, right? Is it? All I know is that there was a little blob, which I'd never yes. seen was there before. Okay, right. Phew. It was great. Great feature. And the good thing it, with, with the Google Photos is that if you upload that, or it just happens, it just happens automatically, really, then it will create a GIF, uh, essentially like a live photo um, for you. And it'll say, hey, do you like this? If you don't like it, we'll get rid of it. But we, hey, we've, we've had a go for you. And if you've taken little bits of videos of a day trip, it'll combine those, stick a funky soundtrack to it. I never thought I would like something like that. As someone who you know edits video from time to time, I've always liked control, but... It's actually quite good. I think that's a similar thing with live photos. On the face of it, it's something. It makes no sense. It sounds rubbish. But then when you actually see it, it does something that you go, hmm, I quite like that. I like that. Is Google Photos different to Picasso? Because I saw that Picasso was closing or is closed, hasn't it? Picasso's going. I believe it's now one and the same thing. I could be wrong there but I think it's one and the same thing now. David, could you find out for next time? In the same way that I'll have a word for Apple Watch widgets, you, you get the lowdown on Picasa. Thanks. Thanks. If you could do that. And I'll try and use photos. <laughs> I think we're done. Think we're hey. Done. Hey, Will. Hey, Tom. Thanks. This was fun. It's David, fun. It's good to see you. End of Fraculous. If your puny human minds can handle more, then follow on Twitter. At sign F R A C K U L O U S or individually at sign David McClelland D A V I D M C C L E L L A N D at sign Jeff Tech G E O F F T E C H at sign Will Head W I L L H E A D Email your brains to hello at sign fraculous.com Laters Gators How would you like me to dropbox this to you? Are you gonna send send me a dropbox? I could send you a file request. How much drop do that? Bo- how much dropbox space do you have, Jeff? Do you have sixteen gig? One terabyte. Oh you've got a terabyte, okay. <laughs> I love no, you know this. We've had this conversation. I love oh, Dropbox now. I okay. love Dropbox so much. I love it so much. I got Office three six five with their one terabyte, and I now back up my Dropbox to, to, to my OneDrive. Oh, good work! I've got a backup of my cloud. I have a cloud of a cloud. And I f- love it. It's the best. If you've got a terabyte, just stick it on Dropbox, Jeff, <laughs> and send me a link. <laughs> Let's do that. Right. Yep. Lovely. Mm.